Good morning. Um, yeah, go on. <laughs> Gaetano just has a few things to tell us of interest that he's seen in the museum. So, uh, yes, uh, I'd like to suggest you to visit uh, some room, rooms in museum, British Museum dedicated to uh, hoards, coin hoards, ancient coin hoards uh, of uh, different uh, uh, periods from uh, ancient Greek uh, uh, to uh, mid Middle Ages and because I, I, found, I find that uh, these hoards, um, uh, coin hoards, uh, are important to understand some periods of the history because I noticed that uh, uh, before uh, great wars, a great instability, period of instability, uh, people used to um, uh, uh, used to hoard uh, gold and silver, and uh, uh, the effect uh, was that uh, all uh, gold and silver uh, disappeared from uh, the circulation. So. Uh, uh, I repeat, I suggest you to visit uh, these, these rooms. And uh, there is also um, a room, the number C uh, 69 piece, piece uh, dedicated to the gold and the Bible. And uh, I, I find that uh, also this, uh, this room, this little room is uh, very interesting. Also for the the, for our uh, subject. Excellent. Thanks very much, Gaetano. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, back to Peter uh, on the um, the rise and fall of the Keynesian Friedmanite monetary system. Um, just just one comment on uh, uh, on what Peter on Peter's lectures beforehand. Um, you talk about the a new attempt and the new attempt and and these things. Um, the, the, the point is that it's not efficient when the market for interest is not there but interest is still there as it were time preference and productivity of capital are still there it's just that there is no market for interest as it were so even 5,000 years ago let's say uh, someone has, has hoarded by their twilight years a thousand ounces of gold and they want to, uh, they, they, they make their plans and um, they, they imagine they'll need 50 ounces of gold per year, 5%. Um, that will last 20 years. You know, so the concept of time preference is still there. It's just there's no market for the other side of it, as it were. So this is, this is just another way of what I was saying yesterday, that money doesn't yield anything in and of itself. Okay. Maybe you want to throw in the uh, triple contract thing, how people went around and Not at the moment. <laughs> okay. So um, if we'll, we'll go to uh, Peter's second lecture, and we'll, we'll reserve all questions um, on that lecture for the uh, last hour. So, Peter. Thank you. Right. Well, what Sandeep was touching upon is what I would call natural law. 
Natural law is maybe a misnomer. Natural law should be natural order. Even when another player who allow, you know, who doesn't belong in the hexagonal model, but he's a seventh player, when that seventh player introduces distortions in the natural order and coordination, and that could be, oh, let's, let's take an example, medieval times, interest rates were compulsory zero, doesn't necessarily mean that people did comply or didn't comply. But that's because if, if you had a classical uh, upbringing and you had read uh, Iphigenia, you know, the uh, Greek drama play Iphigenia was the daughter of... I see, I see some people nodding. You know, she had to bury her brother who was killed in the battlefield and the king said, no, you can't. She should. Yes, I can. Because natural order takes precedence over um, positivist legal order. But we won't go into positivism right now, <laughs> otherwise, we'll be here next week. Um, back to the hexagonal model. It is um, a good question to see. And, um, <laughs> Unfortunately, I had to study the ISLM model. If you're not an economist, don't worry about it. It, will, it gave me stomachache, and it will give you stomachache if you, if you look at it. Don't worry about it, but if you did, this model blows away the ISLM model. It does. It blows it out of the water. The ISLM model assumes that the central focal point of our entire universe is the central bank dictating interest rates. We'll come to that now. First, first and foremost, we look at under a gold standard, who is in charge and who isn't. Under a gold, unadulterated gold standard, these are the forces, these six forces influence the rate of interest. And we have seen already that interest rates will not rise indefinitely. Why not? For the simple reason that the entrepreneur will say, well, hang on, I can't make more than what the interest rates of the other bonds are producing, so heck with this, I'm stopping this nonsense in this circus, I'm going with the bond and I'm stopping my venture. That is what stops The ceiling. It's, that's where it stops. You cannot go higher. Because soon enough, everybody will want to profit from the high interest rates. Of course, that's, that's not possible because then you're all long bonds and nobody is producing, no zero entrepreneurs, which is a contradiction in terms, of course, and somebody has to produce something. Eh? Now, on the other hand, the flow rate. Who determines the flow rate? Now, by the way, what I've just said is my own wording. You will find the professor's wording in a lot more elegant and scientific ways explained in the hexagonal model. 
I will not care to repeat it. I'm not that intelligent. I can't even remember, remember that after so many years, but I think I get the principle. I get the thought. This is the ceiling. What? This is Bohm Barbeck. This is what he said. Remember, I started with that. Bohm Barbeck said, well, interest has got something to do with productivity. And he's right. Marginal productivity, that is, because the marginal entrepreneur will say, I'm out, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm going to savings market and I will stop doing whatever I'm doing. I can get more here than I can get here. Now, what stops interest rates from falling all the way to zero? If we had bone back here, then it must be some, somebody else here. It's the marginal time preference. Now, Mises didn't talk about marginal time preference, but it only makes sense if he would have spoken about marginal time preference. Because here, people have a preference if you have two cash flow machines, two cash flow engines, and I call that a bond, bond A and bond B, both of them, oh sorry, both of them could use 5%. The only one difference is that this one has a longer maturity and this one has the shorter maturity. Which one are you going to take? Don't know. Obviously the shorter one. Both of them are equal. Even in risk, they're homogeneous. Obviously you're taking the shorter one. So this is, the, this is marginal time preference. The rate of interest will never fall to zero because They'll defend the floor. I can see some people nodding yes. Okay. No? Why? Well, I have a question, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> Who is the ultimate owner of the risk? Like, who's underwriting that risk there between the enrichment and the hand? Like, for example... Investment the bankers, capitalists, uh, go, go between. No, underwriting no. the risk. Just the average time, let's say he's, he's making money, the young person, he's earning an income. Okay. In this model, the income earner then eventually progresses to becoming an income holder because he's got wealth. Yes. And then the income holder lends the money to the investment banker, or the investment banker is a go-between. Mm -hmm. So why is the young person even linked to the investment banker? Because on this amount of the flow goes left to right to top, that triangle would just... I'm not considering you as an old person. Huh? Where do you put your money? Now. Well, did I have to answer that? More, you save it. The, the right way to save it would be if you are risk averse. If you're an investment banker, don't look at me. But if you are risk averse, you would put it in, in, in safe, safe material. Gold bonds with a sinking fund protection. Am I going too fast? No? no? Okay. Sinking fund protection, we don't have time to get there, but the point I'm, I was trying to make is that if you save, and trying to save up capital along the way, you would do that 
try or try to do that risk free. You can do it. You can do it aggressively, sure. At your own risk. That's that's your arbitrage. That's that's the arbitrage of the annuitant to choose the high risk inventor or the other. High risk ventures, low risk ventures, bonds. That's up to you. You can lose your shirt. Sure. But don't blame the system. Back to um, the flow rate. Um, why is the flow rate defended in time preference? You know, the time, the marginal time preference, and I put there, that's the dominant rate. Why is it the dominant rate? Why, why is this the floor? It's always defended. Anybody read the notes? Oh, nasty question <laughs> on a Sunday morning. <laughs> well, I, I, I would leave, I mean, I would invite you to read the hexagonal model there. It's explained in very nice, elegant, in a nice and elegant way. But basically, you know, how, how, how should we explain this in very simple words? Time preference. Um, well, from the example that, uh, that I gave, let's say, with the thousand ounces of uh, silver, you know, if, if you think that 5% uh, per year of that hoard, you know, is sufficient, so that's 20 years, yeah. basically, you know. But then if someone comes along saying, well, I can give you 7%, you know. What are you going to take? Exactly. Now, we're still, we're still assuming normalcy. We don't assume dark ages where interest rates are zero. We are assuming that people are offering something. You're taking the offer, you're sitting here, you want, especially this one, he wants income. He's got a hold. And thanks to the investment banker, his go-between, he's being offered a certain yield, and it will never go through zero. <coughs> his risk is, the, is him. Yeah. The annuitant's risk is the annuitant. Well, he's already at that stage, though. Yeah, so he's got the hoard of gold, he's got the hoard of silver, basically. So I've done my calculations, I'm merely concerned about the time that I've got left and the amount that I've got to cover that, basically. And if I think it's 20 years, 5%, you know, then that's fine, I can shave off 5% of my hoard every year. But then, if Peter comes up to me and says, you know, I've got this brilliant venture, um, then I've swapped my hoard for his bonds, basically. So my risk lies completely with him. Yeah. We're not talking risk here. Let's, let's back to the model here. Really, I'll come to you. Uh, but back just the bottom line is, if I've got gold and you offer me some decent return on it, you're not getting it. Exactly. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to put it in my pocket under my pillow. And then you come along and you say, I'll give you a 1% a year, two, three, five, maybe. 
You see, at some point, you reach that level and you say, I can earn that much? Okay, take my goal. And that's the line. And if, it, if the, the floor will never go below the marginal guy with gold in his pocket, because he's going to hang on to it. And if you want to borrow, or anybody wants to borrow, they have to increase their things. They have to exactly. Yeah, they have and to come up with something. I'm sure you can talk about it. Otherwise, they're out of jobs here. These people have to offer something. Otherwise, they're out of jobs. They're interested. If you don't take the offer, then, then they are they out of jobs. You know, this is not Bernanke making an arbitrary decision. This is 100 million people with gold in their pockets weighing out their options. Should I hold on to it or give it away? Don't forget, if you lend it out, you can't use it. It's like you rent your house. You rent your house, you don't need your house. Somebody else is using it for a period of time. So in a way, you're renting out your gold. What's the income? What's the return? What's the rental? That's the floor. Okay, does it work? Yeah, it works. Excuse me. Yes? Um, Kevin, I'm not sure, I'm not, uh, okay, let me put it like uh, this. We have the entrepreneur there, and we have also the venture. Sorry, the? Uh, the venture, the new the ven venture, okay? The entrepreneur, yes. Yes, let's take the very particular case of a venture. A venturing capitalist, he wants to give money to a new venture, which okay, has some sort of potential in the yes. future. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how likely would it be for a venture capitalist uh, in a gold system uh, to invest in a future potential when he can stay with the gold? Had something tangible there. Okay. Well, very good question, but it's the same question as as always. You know what is? Oh, come on, go back. Um, what does the venture capitalist do? You know, he's got capital and he needs to put it to productive use. Who is he? He's a capitalist, right? He's in a troika with the entrepreneur and the inventor. Not, not with these. Yeah. He's neither one nor the other. He's no, not he an investment banker. He, 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 he forms a troika. Let's just think, think back. Think back two and a half thousand years ago. Who, who thinks, who believes the steam machine was invented here in England by Mr. Watson Stevenson, or what, what, what was his name? George Stevenson. I know it was not. Good, because it was invented two and a half thousand years ago? In Alexandria. In Alexandria. Exactly. Party inventor. Who was not in the picture? Capital, if they had sufficient capital. Financial capital? mental capital, uh, no. development capital, yes, oh yes, they would have developed, but the time, time was against them. <laughs> time there, was there against them. There wouldn't have been demand for it. <laughs> of course, <laughs> like you can make your chariot go faster or something, whatever. You know? Yes. This is contriving a situation. I'm sure there would have been plenty of uses for a steam engine 2,000 years ago. Two, two and a half thousand years ago, the steam engine was used in, 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 in other uses for religious purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, they contrived the machine, which was fine for the time. 
let's take another similar example, okay? Let's take, uh, uh, what is the name of, uh, powder, gunpowder. Yes. It was invented in China. For, uh, uh, it was used for nothing apart from fireworks for many hundreds of years until the Byzantines realized that it so was oil. So was oil, it was a big slurry. There slurry's. was no demand. Look I don't was, get what we're trying to, to, to yeah. point we're trying to make here, but let's save it till the end. The uh, demand doesn't even come in here. I mean, the demand supply there, there is. Are there capitalists or, or entrepreneurs in China? I'm sure they're very entrepreneurial still now. Yes, but let's let's not well, look at demand supply here um, because that that would that would be equilibrium thinking um, in the formation of interest rates. This model looks at the troika of the capitalist who is, who, who is multiplying the opportunities for the, for the inventor and the entrepreneur. In time, if the time has not come, for whatever reason, maybe because there's no market, for whatever reason, then it won't happen. The steam engine was there two and a half thousand years ago. Well, with passing of time, it did happen. Why it happened? Well, we may look at all sorts of uh, metaphysical reasons, maybe uh, why it did or it didn't. But in, in the formation of, of the interest rate, it has, it has nothing to do. Supply and demand for goods and services have little to do with the formation of interest. The formation of interest has to do with these six people, roles, these six roles. And the flow rate is determined by marginal product marginal time preference, the ceiling rate is determined by productivity, marginal productivity of capital. Right? I don't think one can object to that under a gold standard because here yeah, the instrument is a gold bond. Even two and a half thousand years ago, and in Alexandria, there were no—I don't think there were gold bonds. It was uh, the, em the emperor, or, or what's the pharaoh, who uh, had life uh, in, in Alexandria under tight control. But the word capitalist is basically from from uh, the 14th century in Europe. That's where. That's our departure point. This is important. The instrument is the gold bond. Because in the uh, next session, which we should have uh, basically, well, I had to finish this. But if you understand this, I will apply it now to what we have now, um, a fiat credit system. And the best way to, to demonstrate this is to dig in your pockets. Anybody with a note? A tenor? Anybody? Fiver. You all have... Yeah, show it, show it, show I have a question for you. I have a question. No, really, no. This is better. It gets me out of the subway, at least. <laughs> this is my question to you. Why... Do you give the issuer of this note credit at zero interest? Do you think 
you are carrying your wealth, portions of your wealth. Do you think you have portions of your wealth now? Well, that is the question, of course. No. You are a carrier of liability. The issue is liability. You're not carrying wealth. You are giving the issuer credit to the amount of whatever it says on that bill. At zero interest. Hooray! You have been conned. How? Well, why does it start again? Oh, no, okay. What happens under a non-gold standard? The history of the demise of the gold standard starts in 18, well, actually before 1870. But that's the demonetization of silver. Coincidence or not, the demonetization of silver, which is the most hoardable material in the small, happens to be at the same time of the up and coming and rising of central banks. Coincidence? I think not. The issuers of the bills, little bills that you carry in your wallets, were the same institutions that came up. They took silver and gave you their credit instead. It is not as being portrayed in certain popularized versions of economics that these bills that you carry in your pocket were falsified notes or overissued notes of the, of the uh, um, goldsmith. The goldsmith had better things to do than to overissue his liabilities. You know, he would be hanged if he did. So he was wiser than that. Don't assume ever that, 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 that's, a, that's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. Anyway, we have another time constraint, so we won't go into other fairy tales. We are now faced with central banks. We are told that central banks are the center of the universe, and we all evolve around the central bank, like we all, you know, the sun. Didn't the sun turn around the earth at one stage? So we all turn around the central bank. And if you don't believe that... Well, in Europe it did. <laughs> in Europe it did, yes. Um, if, if you don't believe that, they will make you, they will make you, you know. Because they can do something to interest rates and they will hurt you. Temporarily. So what happens, because I'm taking the same model here, and I apply it to a fiat system, what determines the ceiling rate? Well, important to understand is that in your pockets there's no gold coins. There's no silver coins. Under a gold standard you could withdraw everything from your local 
savings institute, your, your, your bank, you could withdraw that in dissatisfaction with the interest rates because you had a time preference. Well, if you pay me nothing, I can just as well keep it to myself. Bang, here's in my pocket. If everybody did that, the bank would be starved of gold coins and they were forced to sell a few of their assets, which was typically bills, and they would have to monetize, well, they don't monetize, but they would, you know, get money for the bills. So they had to offer something for those bills in order to replenish their uh, cash reserves. By withdrawing the gold coins, the population was in control of the floor. If the floor was going to down too much, you just had to hoard gold. Banks would be forced to put up interest rates by selling some of their reserves. Selling reserves, remember? Where's my little, you know, selling something? would push down